for that very kind introduction and for the invitation to be here today. It's hard, it's actually hard for me to believe that it's been 10 years, <laughs> but I have nothing but wonderful memories of being a house officer here, and uh, the aggressive drivers of Boston have kept me in good shape, so I was able to push my way through on the 1-9 elevator this morning. <laughs> so um, today I'll be speaking about FGF 21, or Fibroblast Growth Factor 21. Um, I could speak about this topic for hours, so I've tried to keep my talk sufficiently short so that there should be ample time, I hope, for questions. So I'd, I'd like to start, before I get into FGF 21, about why I think studying starvation is important. Now, this is probably one of the few groups in the world that I don't have to explain myself to, but um, uh, I, so I think it's important to study starvation from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, I was a biological anthropology major in college, and so I like to think about things in terms of, in, con in the context of evolutionary pressures. And our environment of evolutionary adaptiveness was marked by periods of both feast and famine. And I think to understand the current obesity epidemic, it's important to not only understand our, our adaptation to feasting, but also to famine. And I think understanding our, our body's adaptation to starvation may help inform us um, towards understanding some of the potential therapeutic treatment options for obesity. Now the question is what happens during starvation? So the goal during starvation is really to conserve energy and to minimize energy expenditure. Um, so we want to minimize energy expenditure on processes that are not important for our survival. And what are those processes? So I think of them in, in two categories. One is reproduction. So reproduction is important for our species survival, but not important for an individual being survival. And the other is something I call non-essential homeostasis. And non-essential homeostasis is really um, IGF-1 dependent processes, like linear growth in children or maintenance of bone mass and muscle mass in adults. And with respect to reproduction, hypothalamic amenorrhea is a means by which the body can conserve energy. And that's by really shutting down the ability to reproduce at the level of the hypothalamus. Um, and this happens through disruption of gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And leptin has been shown to be a key hormonal mediator of hypothalamic amenorrhea. I think um, the best study that clearly demonstrates um, leptin's important role in mediating hypothalamic amenorrhea in humans is a study that was done by Corrine Welk and Chris Mansoros. So they studied eight women with hypothalamic amenorrhea, and these women were women who were either over-exercisers and therefore in a state of negative energy balance, or um, they, were, uh, they were very low weight. And in women with hypothalamic amenorrhea, the gonadotropin-releasing disruption leads to really an apulsatile um, LH frequency. So you can see here um, these, two, uh, these two graphs on the left show what happens during hypothalamic amenorrhea. The normal pulsatile um, LH pulses are absent, and so you have an, either an apile um, graph or you have a low frequency graph. And what they showed was that after two weeks of recombinant human leptin treatment, there was normalization of both LH pulsatility and there was also an increased amplitude of LH. And three of these women actually went on to ovulate. So really, leptin was, was clearly a key mediator of the hypothalamic amenorrhea. And with respect to non-essential homeostasis or IGF-1-dependent processes, these are also not necessary for survival. And starvation is really characterized by a state of growth hormone resistance. Now, lower um, or less complex organisms only have IGF-1, so they take in nutrients, IGF-1 is released, and they grow. 
But more complex organisms in humans have both growth hormone, which stimulates IGF-1 release in the liver, and which mediates most of growth hormone's growth-related processes. But also growth hormone is, is probably likely important for another factor, and that other factor is to help us maintain glycemia. So growth hormone has both lipolytic actions and it also has insulin-resistant actions. And that helps us, for instance, in an overnight fast, an eight to 10 hour period without food intake, growth hormone levels go up and through the lipolysis and insulin resistance that helps us maintain our glucose levels overnight. Um, in states of chronic undernutrition, we develop growth hormone resistance because we want our growth hormone levels to be normal or elevated to help us maintain that glucose level and to maintain euglycemia, but we don't want to spend any energy on growth. And so IGF-1 levels are low and that helps us minimize energy expenditure, but you want the growth hormone level and the growth hormone action to still be there. Now, David Clemens and Ann Kubansky demonstrated um, what happens to IGF-1 levels during starvation. And what they did, and, um, and David did 10-day fasting studies um, long before anyone else at MGH. And what they showed was that um, after five days into a fast, IGF-1 levels dropped to below the normal range. And importantly, they showed that this was not growth hormone mediated, because you can see that growth hormone levels were undetectable um, early on in the fast, and then they started to rise. But while growth hormone levels were rising, IGF-1 levels continued to drop. So it wasn't that the growth hormone levels were dropping and IGF-1 levels were dropping in response, but instead, growth hormone um, IGF-1 was resistant to the actions of growth hormone. So the liver was resistant to the actions of growth hormone, and IGF-1 was not responding and not uh, responding appropriately in the state of starvation. So. Um, Superphysiologic doses of growth hormone we've shown actually don't overcome the growth hormone resistance that we see in starvation. So, so anorexia nervosa is a chronic um, primary psychiatric disorder that's characterized by low weight and failure um, to, it's really characterized by self-induced starvation and a failure to maintain an adequate weight. And these women with anorexia nervosa are actually a very good model of chronic um, undernutrition. So we decided to see if we could um, make IGF-1 levels go up in these women who have growth hormone resistance. And so we gave them growth hormone doses that were five to six times the doses that you would treat individuals with growth hormone deficiency. So very super physiologic doses of growth hormone. And we did this for 12 weeks. And what we found was that IGF-1 levels really didn't budge above the low normal range during that entire period of time. So even with very super physiologic doses of growth hormone, we were not able to overcome growth hormone resistance. And the question is, um, what is the mediator of growth hormone resistance? So clearly there's a block at the level of the liver, but the question is, what is this mediator? And I promise I will come back to this. So fibroblast growth factor 21 um, is a member of the fibroblast growth factor family of um, proteins, and it was first identified in 2000 by Nishimura and colleagues. Um, it's a hormone, um, one of the few fibroblast growth factors that has hormonal effects. The other ones are fibroblast growth factor 19 in humans and its homologue, which is 15 in mice, um, as well as fibroblast growth factor 23, which some of you may know has um, vitamin D effects um, in the kidney. So um, after 2000, when this, this hormone was first described, there were no papers on this topic for five years. And then after 2005, the number took off exponentially. So the question is, what, what happened in 2005? 
So in 2005, Eli Lilly described the metabolic effects of fibroblast growth factor 21. So they were looking at glucose uptake in 3T3L1 adipocytes and found that fibroblast growth factor um, 21 was able to um, increase glucose uptake in a dose-dependent manner in these human adipocytes. Um, what they also found was that um, its effects were additive to insulin. So here you can see glucose uptake in the adipocytes with insulin alone and then with the addition of fibroblast growth factor 21. And um, what they found was that GLUT1 was um, expressed by, or was um, induced by fibroblast growth factor 21, whereas GLUT4 was not. And so this, this um, glucose uptake seemed to be insulin independent. The group also demonstrated that treatment of leptin deficient mice or OB OB mice with FGF21 um, significantly decreased plasma glucose levels after three and seven days of treatment. So at day zero, they treated these mice with um, vehicle as the, the open box, um, and then higher, a higher dose of FGF21 is the darker box, so a low dose and a higher dose of FGF21. You can see after three days of treatment, glucose levels came down um, in the FGF21 treated mice, and then by day seven, glucose levels were normalized in these in OB-OB mice. And what they also found were, uh, was that plasma triglyceride levels decreased in a dose-dependent so this really seemed to be a promising potential new treatment for metabolic syndrome. Um, when they looked at FGF21 transgenic mice compared to their wild-type litter mates, these mice weighed less, they had less fat in the liver, um, they retained more brown fat, they had smaller subcutaneous adipocytes, they had improved insulin sensitivity, they had lower fasting blood glucose levels, and they were able to eat twice as much food as their wild-type litter mates, and that was normalized for weight, but gained much less weight. So this was really a dramatic effect. And here you can see the bottom two bars are the transgenic male and female mice compared to their um, wild-type litter mates, and this is after 15 weeks on a high-fat, high-calorie diet. So you can see they, they weigh dramatically less after this period of time. So, so the question is, what about in humans? So there have been two studies um, looking at treatment with FGF21 in humans. And after 28 days of treatment with an FGF21 analog, compared to placebo, there were no significant changes in fasting glucose or fasting insulin levels and no significant change in weight. But they did see a dramatic decrease in triglyceride levels. But I think importantly, if you look at the graphs um, demonstrating the changes, you can see that with escalating doses of FGF21, there really was a dose-dependent effect and there was, although it wasn't um, significant in terms, uh, or compared to placebo, there was a significant change in body weight when you compared um, these individuals to their baseline weight. So there was a, a change in body weight and a change in insulin levels um, after four weeks of treatment with FGF21 compared to baseline. And everything seemed to be going in the right direction. So more recently, um, there was a study looking at a long FGF21 analog. Uh, and in this study, they looked at uh, treatment of FGF21 in non-human primates as well as humans. And they really didn't see a change in glucose or insulin levels, but they did see a drop in body weight in both the non-human primates as well as the humans. Now, interestingly, um, in the monkeys that they studied, um, what they did find was that food intake decreased. And so the change in weight was really due to decreased food intake rather than what we were seeing in mice where they were able to eat more food and way less, and so there was clearly a difference in energy expenditure. Um, but in this in this study, they found that the monkeys weighed less because they ate less, and unfortunately, they didn't measure food intake.
Um, they also found that triglycerides, um, as they did in the other study, dropped dramatically with the treatment of FGF21. So two years after the initial Eli Lilly paper in 2005, two papers were published concurrently in cell metabolism describing FGF21 as a fasting hormone. So why a hormone that increases glucose uptake uh, and leads to weight loss would be induced during starvation is very puzzling. Um, a time when starvation is a time when you want to conserve energy. It's not a time when you want to lose weight. So this is what I refer to as the FGF21 paradox. So how did these groups come to find that FGF21 was a fasting hormone? So the, the one group in, at UT Southwestern, the Cleaver and Mengelsdorf lab, um, was systematically looking at nuclear receptors that potentially regulate fibroblast growth factors. And what they found was that PPAR alpha played a part in regulating FGF21. Now, as many of you know, PPAR alpha is a nuclear receptor that's activated by fatty acids, and it's a key regulator of fatty acid oxidation and transport and ketogenesis. Now, the other group, um, the Flyer Lab at Beth Israel Deaconess, was looking at ketogenic diets, and they were studying ketogenic diets and um, looked, they performed a microarray analysis that identified changes in hepatic gene expression and found that in response to these ketogenic diets or high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets, um, FGF21 was the most upregulated gene with signal transducer activity. So the Cleaver and Mengelsdorf lab showed, um, as did the Flyer lab, that FGF21 was induced with fasting. So these are wild-type mice um, that were fasted, um, and you can see that FGF21 mRNA expression in, in the liver increased dramatically with fasting, and then dropped back down to normal with feeding. And importantly, they showed that this seemed to be a PPAR alpha-mediated process, because in the PPAR alpha null mice, um, with fasting, there was a very small induction of FGF21, so there may be some um, induction of FGF21 that's independent of PPAR alpha, but really nothing compared to the dramatic response you see in the wild type mice. Um, what they also found was that in the fed state, the transgenic FGF21 mice had um, increased ketone levels. And so you expect ketone levels to go up during fasting, um, but not in a fed state. And so they had ketogenesis, um, the transgenic FGF21 mice had ketogenesis even in the fed state. Um, the Flyer Lab similarly showed um, an induction of FGF21 with fasting. And importantly, they showed that um, time course seemed to follow, the time course of induction of ketogenesis seemed to follow the same time course of an in induction of FGF21. So here you can see um, the time points of the fasted mice, and there's really a, a dramatic um, increase in FGF21 um, at the 24-hour time point, and that's when ketone levels also increase dramatically. So therefore, the working hypothesis was that fasting leads to um, PPAR alpha activation through, um, but through fatty acid activation. Of so fasting leads to PPAR alpha um, activation, and that's through fatty acid induction. And that, um, that consequently leads to um, FGF21 production, which helps um, stimulate ketogenesis. And the question is, what about fasting in humans? So in humans, FGF21 is not consistently increased in anorexia nervosa, which again is a model of chronic starvation. So um, three studies have been done looking at FGF21 levels in um, individuals with anorexia. 
Um, the first study was both a cross-sectional study as well as a longitudinal study. So the cross-sectional study involved 17 women with anorexia nervosa compared to 17 healthy uh, normal weight controls. And importantly, the 17 women with anorexia were extremely low weight. These are women that were um, lower weight than women that we typically see, so BMIs of 13 to 14. And what they found was that FGF21 levels were actually lower in anorexia nervosa as compared to the normal weight controls. So a little bit opposite to what you might expect in a state of chronic starvation. Um, but importantly, what they did was they then followed these women while they were being, while they were inpatients being treated um, and gaining weight through realimentation therapy. And what they showed was that FGF21 levels actually decreased after refeeding. So they seem to potentially have maximally stimulated FGF21 levels that then decreased with repeating. Now we looked at 11 um, girls with anorexia nervosa and 12 normal weight adolescent girls um, and compared their FGF21 levels and we found the opposite. Now adolescents and um, women have, have different hormonal patterns and so um, it's a little bit hard to compare the adolescents with the adult women. But what we found uh, were that FGF21 levels were higher in the adolescent girls with anorexia nervosa after controlling for two factors that seem to be important um, predictors of FGF21. So in larger studies, um, looking comparing weight and insulin resistance with FGF21 levels, there seems to be a positive association between FGF21 and both body fat and BMI as well as insulin resistance. So when we controlled for body fat percent and insulin resistance, we found that FGF21 levels were higher in the, in the anorexic girls as compared to the normal weight controls. We then did a cross-sectional study in adult women with anorexia nervosa, and we found no difference in FGF21 levels between the women with anorexia and um, the normal weight now, the question is, how can these disparate findings be explained? And I think it's because subcutaneous fat scores are, are very low in women with anorexia and girls with anorexia nervosa. And therefore, the substrate for PPAR alpha, which is fatty acids, um, and the key inducer of FGF21, those levels are low. And so these women, not surprisingly, potentially have low FGF21 levels just because they're not, they don't have the fatty acids and, and the substrate to activate PPAR alpha. But I think, importantly, the first study in the longitudinal portion demonstrated that FGF21 levels decreased after refeeding. So to me, this means that the levels were maximally stimulated for, for these women with anorexia nervosa when they were starving, and then they were able to come down to, a, to normal for them after refeeding. Um, similarly, in studies looking at acute starvation, there are similarly divergent findings. So I think the take-home points from this slide are that most, most of the studies um, in which uh, acute starvation was studied, um, the, the fasting time points were less than, um, sorry, were, were less than 72 hours. So you can see there was a 48-hour fast, um, a 48-hour fast, a 16-hour fast, and a 72-hour fast. And during the, these short-term fasting studies, there was really no change in FGF21 level seen. There was one longer-term study, um, a seven-day fast, and this was looking at individuals with rheumatoid arthritis, so not really a, a normal, healthy population, but they looked at FGF21 levels before and after the seven-day fast, and what they found was a 74%, so a modest increase in FGF21 levels after seven days of fasting. 
And um, the other thing to take home is that the ketogenic diets, which in Terry Flyer's work in, in the mouse models so dramatically increased um, FGF21 levels, really didn't cause any budge in FGF21 levels, or even it caused a decline in FGF21 levels in individuals on a three-month ketogenic diet. Um, a 12-day ketogenic diet similarly showed no change in FGF21 levels. So clearly there, there are differences between the mouse and so in collaboration with Matthew Steinhauser's lab and the Division of Genetics at Brigham and Women's Hospital, we decided to systematically study FGF21 during an acute starvation protocol. Um, and we wanted to look at this both in humans and to replicate some of the mouse studies to try to get a better understanding of whether this really is a starvation-induced hormone in humans. So our study aims were to test the hypothesis that FGF21 is a fasting-induced hormone in humans. And, and secondarily, to explore whether critical functions that are attributed to FGF21 in the mouse models are applicable in the human model, um, and in, in the context of the human adaptive starvation response. And those two of the, the um, functions that we were looking at were ketogenesis and thermogenesis, or brown fat induction. So in terms of the study design, we studied 11 subjects. We brought them into the Clinical Research Center for an inpatient fasting study. Um, on the day of their admission, they had a blood draw, they had a subcutaneous fat pet biopsy, and they had a pet MRI to look for brown fat. Um, on days one, three, five, seven, nine, and 10, we repeated uh, the blood draw. We um, repeated the, the fat pet biopsy on day one and day 10. And um, at day 10, we also repeated the pet MRI again to look for um, brown fat. Now these um, individuals were not allowed to eat any food, but they were um, given free access to water. Um, we treated all of them with a multivitamin um, as well as 20 milliequivalents of potassium chloride every day, and we treated them with 200 milligrams of allopurinol daily to prevent the hyperuricemia that we do see with short-term um, fasting. Were they normal weight? They were. They were normal weight, so they were between 101 and 120 percent of ideal body weight. What age were they? So, um, so this is the table one that shows the age range. So um, our age range um, was 22 to 48, um, with a mean age of 31.5. And importantly, all of the women who were in the study, there were eight women and three men, um, all of the women were premenopausal. Um, you can see that their average BMI was 26.7, and so um, they were normal weight to overweight, but no one was frankly obese. Um, their percent body fat by, uh, by DEXA scan was the mean of 33.6%, and the range was 236 to 46.8%. And their baseline serum glucose levels were, um, fasting glucose levels were all within the normal range, so everyone's glucose level is below 100. Were they all women? No, uh, eight women and three men. So they were studied, we started the fast during um, the early follicular phase of the cycle. Um, and so uh, of, of the people who started the study, there were 11 subjects who started, nine of them completed the study. Um, one person dropped out after five days, one of the women dropped out after five days because she didn't want to undergo the PET MRI and radiologic procedures at the completion of the study. And the second person um, we actually removed from the study, when he came in, he had normal liver function tests um, at the screening visit. At baseline, when he came in, his liver function tests were elevated and continued to rise on day one. So we removed him from the study, but everyone else completed the study. Um, so what did we find? So we found that FGF21 was induced, but not until the later 
days of starvation. So our, our data are actually quite um, congruent with what we see in short-term fasting. So we did see that FGF21 levels didn't really budge um, during the early days of the fasting, so up to 72 hours. And in fact, there was a little bit of a decline in FGF21 levels, of course not significant. But um, really, FGF21 was not in induced until days 7 through 10 of the fast. And um, the 10-day, the day 10 FGF21 levels were four times higher than baseline FGF21 levels. So we also measured intact FGF21 to make sure that we were not simply measuring inactive FGF21 fragments. And the receptor complex for FGF21 is the FGF receptor 1C complex with beta clotho. And that really requires both an intact C and N termini. Um, and so when we measured intact FGF21, we found a very similar pattern. So um, we found an induction um, really by day 10 of fasting. And so there was an increase even in the intact um, levels of FGF21. Um, interestingly, we next looked at ketogenesis. Now, as you may remember, in mice, um, and we replicated these experiments, in, in mice, FGF21 um, is induced very early on in the fast, and you can see by the six-hour time point, there's already um, higher levels of FGF21 as compared to baseline, um, and continues to rise. And, and then after this, and following a similar time course, you can see that ketone levels rise. But ketone levels rise really in response or after we see an induction in FGF21. So we looked at humans, and what we found in humans was actually quite different and surprising to us. So in humans, you can see that um, ketone levels rose, but they rose very, very early in the fast. So they rose by day three. We see a peak and then a plateau of, of ketone levels. Um, and you can see that when ketone levels peak, um, FGF21 levels are actually no different, and in fact, not significantly, but they were lower, the mean level was lower than the baseline FGF21 level. Um, so really, in, in humans, we don't seem to see the same um, induction of ketogenesis by FGF21 that we saw in the mirror models. We next looked at thermogenesis, um, or brown fat induction. So in mice, FGF21 has been shown to induce browning. Um, so these figures demonstrate FGF, that FGF21 treatment stimulates. Um, this is a gene profile that's characteristic of brown fat. You can see um, from coupling protein 1, diagonase 2, um, PGC1 alpha. So this is looking at FGF21 um, induction of, of this characteristic brown fat gene profile of brown adipose tissue and inguinal white adipose tissue. So in collaboration with um, Cyprian Katana at the Martino Center, we performed PET MRIs in seven of the nine subjects who completed the study. And at baseline, um, five of the subjects showed areas of FDG uptake in the supraclavicular region. So here you can see um, FDG uptake on PET scanning in the supraclavicular region, which is um, considered brown fat. And this is a merged image of the MRI in the PET CT, and you can see this lighted, this area that's lighting up is um, considered brown fat. Now, all five of the subjects who had evidence of brown fat at baseline, the brown fat disappeared by day 10. And this is at the time point when FGF21 was maximally stimulated in these individuals. So all five of them, the, the brown fat disappeared. And this was um, at the same time that resting energy expenditure measured by direct calorimetry was significantly lower um, in these subjects. 
We also looked at um, white adipose tissue biopsies, and we looked at the gene profile in subcutaneous white adipose tissue. And what we found was um, really no difference between um, fasting day, or actually a decrease. We did find a slight decrease um, in levels of PG1, PGC1-alpha in Cydia as, as normalized to baseline. Um, but importantly, brown fat is not uh, contribute is is not um, is not found really in subcutaneous white adipose tissue. So this is not surprising, and, and it's a huge caveat to to these data. Um, so we looked. We were trying to figure candidate um, metabolic predictors of fasting FGF of fasting induced FGF twenty one. So when we looked at baseline resting energy expenditure, um, baseline LDL triglyceride levels. Um, baseline subcutaneous adipose tissue, which was measured by MRI, visceral adipose tissue, or biomassive index, really nothing predicted the changes in FGF21 that we were seeing uh, during, during fasting. Um, what we did, we also looked at um, hormone levels, for instance, insulin. We looked at insulin resistance with home IR. We looked at uh, non-esterified fatty acid levels and looked to see whether the change in um, in the time course of, of these hormones predicted the change in FGF21. And really, none of these, um, none of these did. But what we, what we did find was that AST and ALT, um, which could be a marker of muscle breakdown or could be a marker of fat infiltration and lipid infiltration into the liver, um, did weakly predict um, the change in FGF21. So AST is more strongly than ALT. The change in AST and ALT levels seemed to predict um, the changes that we were seeing with FGF21. So I think this is you know, a future area of interest in to try to figure out why AST and ALT predict this change in FGF21. Um, what we also found, and which was most interesting to me, was that um, the induction of FGF21 seemed to be um, happen after a subject-specific weight loss threshold. So we looked to see if, um, if the change in weight was able to predict the change in FGF21 levels. And here you can see that um, there does seem to be an association, and this was a significant association, at, at the four to six kilogram weight loss threshold, that was when FGF21 seemed to be induced in, in all of our subjects. And we even controlled for sex to make sure that this was not um, a difference we were seeing because of the differences in males and females, and it really wasn't. So um, the question is whether this implies that there's a transition into late starvation in which FGF21 becomes a critical player, and that um, transition happens when, when humans lose a critical amount of weight. It's not known in, in a future area of potential research. You thought that as a function of percent body weight loss? Yes, it, it was. It was really just the absolute the absolute. Yeah. Does it correlate at all with that inactivity? So, um, actually, I, I can show you a slide. I didn't put it in the talk just for the sake of time, but um, what we found with adiponectin, so FGF21 has been shown to induce adiponectin and cause increased adiponectin levels with, with FGF21 treatment or in transgenic mice. What we found actually was that FGF21, um, as FGF21 levels increased, adiponectin went down in these humans. So adiponectin levels dropped um, during the 10-day fast, and I can show you a slide at the end with So what else, um, the other thing that we found that was quite interesting was that there seemed to be a divergent tissue-specific regulation of the FGF21 pathway with fasting. So um, as I mentioned, FGF21 
21 binds to its receptor complex, which is FGF receptor 1 and beta clotho. And what you can see here is in um, mouse skeletal muscle, it's a little bit hard to see, but there is um, FGF receptor 1 and beta clotho levels um, increase in the skeletal muscle of the mice um, during fasting. And so you can see an increase by day 10, or it, these are in mice, so you can, at the end of the 24-hour fast, you can see an increase in beta clotho levels and an increase in FGF receptor 1. Um, what we found in, and there's also an increase in um, GLU-1. Um, what we found in the subcutaneous white adipose tissue of the mice was actually quite different, and actually there was a down-regulation of FGF receptor 1 and beta clotho in the subcutaneous white adipose tissue. And in humans, what we, found, we found something similar. So we found FGF21 levels themselves were lower in the subcutaneous white adipose tissue, but also there was a decrease um, by day 10 of the FGF receptor 1 and beta clotho complex. So to me, this helped explain potentially, of course this is just a working hypothesis, explains the FGF21 paradox because um, clearly there's a, there's a tissue-specific divergence in tissue-specific regulation that could depend on um, the nutritional state of, of the mouse or the human. And so in this case, you would want during starvation FGF21 levels to help um, shunt glucose to the skeletal muscle, but you don't want the, the FGF21 to shunt glucose to the subcutaneous adipose tissue. And so the, the downregulation of the receptors in the white adipose tissue and upregulation in um, the skeletal muscle could help explain why FGF21 is induced during fasting. So you see a downregulation of PPR gamma in humans and an upregulation in rodents. Could that explain why there may not be bone loss in humans that are Because the PPR gamma mechanism was at one point to be the reason why there was increased bone loss. So I'm, I'm going to show you the bone data. So there, there are data suggesting that FGF21 does lead to bone loss, and I'll, I will get to that in just a couple of minutes. Um, so as I mentioned previously, starvation is associated with a decrease in energy expenditure mediated by growth hormone resistance and hypothalamic amenorrhea. And both of these processes also contribute to one of the long-term um, negative consequences of chronic starvation, which is loss of bone mass. So now the question becomes, does FGF21 directly regulate any of these starvation-induced processes? So it turns out that FGF21 has been shown in mouse models to mediate growth hormone resistance. So the Cleaver and Mengelsdorf lab um, at UT Southwestern demonstrated that FGF21 mice, transgenic mice, are smaller than their wild-type litter mates and have higher growth hormone levels and lower IGF-1 levels than their wild-type litter mates. So there is the state of growth hormone resistance. And what they elegantly demonstrated was that FGF21 appears to mediate growth hormone resistance by decreasing phosphorylation in the stat 5. So growth hormone receptor binds to its cell surface receptor and activates Janus kinase 2, which leads to phosphorylation of stat 5, which in turn leads to transcription of target genes, including IGF1. So when stat 5 phosphorylation is blocked, that leads to a decrease in transcription so what we did was we looked at um, adolescent girls with uh, anorexia nervosa, again, a model of chronic long-term undernutrition. What we found was that there was a positive association between log FGF21 and growth hormone area under the curve in adolescent girls with anorexia nervosa. 
And this was coupled with an inverse association between FGF21 levels that were elevated. So we only looked at uh, the elevated levels. Um, so FGF21 levels above a certain threshold in this population. And when looking at that in association with IGF-1, we found a, a pretty strong inverse association. So this in no way implies causation, but at least it suggests that there is an association in humans between FGF-21 and the growth hormone IGF-1 axis. So um, what about hypothalamic amenorrhea? Um, so in, uh, again, the, the Kleeberg-Mengelstorff lab showed that in urine models, um, the FGF-21 transgenic mice are anovulatory. They have a significantly greater age of puberty. And they also had decreased um, kispeptin-1 gene expression. Now, kispeptin-1 is a potent stimulator of gonadotropin releasing hormone. So they have decreased kis one gene expression in the anteroventral paraventricular nuclei of the hypothalamus. So, um, but whether there's a relationship between FGF-21 and hypothalamic amenorrhea in humans is unknown. Um, a number of years ago, a New England Journal of Medicine paper demonstrated um, an increased incidence of um, heterozygous gene mutations um, that are characteristic of what we see in idiopathic hypogonadotropic hypogonadism in a population of women with um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. And one of the candidate genes um, was FGF receptor 1. But interestingly, a loss of mutation function was associated with hypothalamic amenorrhea in that population. And that's opposite to what you would expect if FGF21 was in fact inducing hypothalamic amenorrhea. So I think, I think we don't really have an answer in humans. And um, another wrinkle in this story is that a few months ago, Terry Flyer's group at BI Deaconess um, published a paper suggesting that FGF21 um, doesn't directly mediate hypothalamic amenorrhea or, or the um, loss of reproductive ability um, in these transgenic mice, but instead she thinks it's due to um, the fact that they're smaller and way less than their wild-type litter mates. And she showed this by um, giving them ketogenic <coughs> diets, and as you remember, the, the mice that have that um, low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet have very high levels of FGF21, and when she fed them that diet, they were able to normally and um, and so really the FGF21 in and of itself didn't seem to um, be the cause of the loss of reproductive function. So this remains still a very controversial area. And then the question is what about loss of bone mass? So um, FGF21 um, has been associated with bone loss in urine models, although just a few weeks ago a paper came out showing the exact opposite of everything I'm about to show you here. So this is also a very controversial area. But um, these mice, the FGF21 transgenic mice have uncoupled bone turnover. So they have increased markers of bone resorption and decreased markers of bone formation. And here you can see um, these are micro CT images of the tibial metaphysis and um, the total proximal tibia. And I, I don't even really need to describe. You can see how clearly there, there is a significant loss of bone <coughs> in the FGF21 transgenic mice. Um, interestingly, these mice also have higher levels of bone marrow fat um, as compared to their wild-type litter mates. And this, um, this uh, um, the characteristic bone decrease in bone formation markers and increase in bone resorption markers coupled with increased levels of marrow fat is what we see characteristically in individuals with anorexia nervosa. So although these women have very low levels of subcutaneous fat and low levels of visceral fat, they have very high levels of bone marrow fat, which seem to be correlated with uh, bone density. And, and these mice also had high levels of bone marrow fat. 
um, a couple of weeks ago in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research, um, a paper came out from the Amgen group trying to replicate uh, these experiments and they found the exact opposite. Um, interestingly, they did see that the mice, the, the FGF21 treated mice did lose weight, but they didn't, they didn't find a bone phenotype um, like this group did. So again, this is a controversial area. But we looked um, to see if we could see um, a bone phenotype uh, in women with anorexia nervosa, and if there was an association with FGF21. And we actually did find um, worsened bone microarchitecture in, in women with anorexia nervosa in the radius. So here you can see um, this is radial bone volume fraction um, as measured by high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT and trabecular number, and you can see an inverse association between um, bone volume fraction and trabecular number in FGF21. And we also measured, um, esti we, we estimated uh, bone strength by looking at radial stiffness and failure load and also found um, an inverse association between FGF21 and these bone strength parameters. Are these adolescents or adults? These were adults. And interestingly, um, we also looked, we did the uh, high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT scans in both the radius and the tibia, and we only found this in the radius. And so the thinking, my, my working hypothesis with that was that um, this, we only see this in non-weight-bearing bone, and perhaps the weight-bearing bone um, is able to somehow overcome factors associated with weight-bearing are able to overcome any potential negative, negative effects of FGF21. So therefore, FGF21 also appears to mediate both hormone resistance, um, and it may be a mediator, we're not sure, it's controversial, of hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, both of which are key processes that help us minimize energy expenditure during starvation and during periods of famine. And it also appears to independently contribute to loss of bone mass, although again, that's controversial. But um, both hypothalamic amenorrhea and low IGF-1 levels and growth hormone resistance can independently, um, both low estrogen levels and low IGF-1 levels can contribute to loss of bone mass. But there, there are data suggesting that FGF-21 in and of itself independently also may contribute to loss of bone mass. So in summary, um, FGF-21 is a starvation-induced hormone with paradoxical properties including increasing glucose uptake and weight loss. FGF21 is upregulated much later in the starvation response in humans as compared to mice. And some of the physiologic functions attributed to FGF21 in mouse models are not recapitulated in human starvation, including induction of ketogenesis and thermogenesis. Um, FGF21 may mediate growth hormone resistance and bone loss in living models as well as humans. And the FGF21 paradox may be partially explained by the fact that FGF21 is divergently regulated during fasting in a tissue-specific manner, suggesting that its functions may really be dependent on nutritional standards. And I think understanding the differences in FGF21 function in mice and humans will be critical as FGF21 analogs continue to be um, actively developed for therapeutic purposes. And finally, I'd just like to acknowledge um, all of the people who helped with, with all of this work. So my mentor, Anne Klebanski, in the neuroendocrine unit at Mass General, um, started doing these fasting studies long before anyone else at Mass General was doing them over 30 years ago. Um, and the rest of the study team that helped with, with these very intense inpatient studies. Um, my colleague in uh, radiology who really um, donated the PET MRIs, which was wonderful because they, they 
clearly showed that um, in humans during starvation, FGF21 doesn't seem to um, induce brown fat. Um, Matt Steinhauser's lab at Brigham Women's Hospital, they did all of the, the mouse work and really were equal um, intellectual contributors with all of this work. Thank you. This the adiponectin slide. So you can see adiponectin levels drop um, during the fast. Um, and this is coincident with the increase in FGF21 levels. Hmm. Zay, what do you think is the impact of changes in amino acid levels on this whole thing? So, uh, your transaminases went up. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you're getting gluconeogenesis from amino acids. Yes. Do amino acids play any role in this? I, I think they probably play a critical role in this. And I think we did measure non-esterified fatty acid levels and just didn't see anything. But I think the next stage of, of trying to figure out the FGF21 story will be to try to do more studies looking to see if we can if we can see any induction by individual amino acids or if, if there is um, an induction. Because I think that, that that will play a critical part in the story. We just weren't able to, to figure, we didn't know what we were going to find and so we didn't, we didn't know that we would need to look for that specifically. But I think that will be a critical Mike, and this is a pragmatic question. So when we looked at FGF21, both in adults and children, we find that between about 25 and 35 percent are below the assay detection limit. Did you find that? And if so, did you screen your subjects before you enrolled them to make sure they had detectable FGF21? So I think the FGF21 assay is very problematic. And it might just be um, because there are things that induce FGF21 that we don't know yet. We didn't find levels below the normal range, but um, these were also more overweight, normal weight to overweight individuals. And because it does correlate with BMI, uh, in a positive had, manner. We had the same thing. We did a study of 17 overweight or obese men. Yep. And if I remember correctly, in five of them, we and they were studied under different sort of ketogenic and non-ketogenic conditions. Yep. And five of them, in at least one of the measures, it was just below the assay detection limit. We didn't find that, but given the assay, I'm not surprised. <laughs> So you had a very interesting slide that showed what happened with du duration of basically starvation as a function of body weight. Yes, yeah? yes. And you said that obviously it's some critical body weight that appears to be an increase. Yes. So in trying to understand what that is, you're saying it's not, in looking at your data, it's not that. Right, okay. right. Did you look at the muscle? Um, we did look at lean body mass as well. We had um, DEXA scans and MRIs, but we didn't see an association. But that is. But you're talking about lean mass. I'm talking about more specifically about muscle. muscle. We didn't look at muscle, and that would be an interesting. Because I think from your next step. Slides, you, look, you reported on in nice, the important role that muscles. You looked at tissue specific. Yes. But going back to humans, I think that becomes very important. A critical. In terms of what's happening in Absolutely. Thank you.
seems that it's a quartile range is pretty pretty wide. Yes. So you have a little wide range of values. And then the penultimate slide said, you know, tissue specific uh, regulation. So I was wondering what you found to be injected day-to-day variability yep. in your uh, subjects and whether that suggests perhaps that that's a very good question. So um, we did do a pre-baseline visit. So we had subjects come in 10 days before the fast as a control for themselves. Um, and the pre-baseline FGF21 levels, when you compare them to the baseline levels, were pretty well correlated, um, which surprised me because there is just a lot of vari variability with this assay. and. There are, there are clearly inducers that we, we just don't know about that are influencing FGF21 levels. But, but the pre-baseline and the baseline levels were pretty, pretty similar. But you don't think the tissue-specific control could lead to uh, fluctuations in blood? Uh, it's, it's possible. So what we found in terms of the tissue-specific control was that it was really receptor downregulation that seemed to be the um, how there was differences in tissue-specific activation, but um, it's, it's very possible. Okay. Other questions? Go ahead. Thank you. Would you consider caloric restriction in terms of as well as starvation in looking at the FGF-21? If you looked at caloric restriction, um, so we personally haven't, but there are other groups who have looked at caloric restriction um, with and changes in FGF21 levels with caloric restriction. Um, what are your thoughts with regard to the bone controllers? You know, the yeah. same with the nanogen and the uh, It's, it's interesting. So the and specifically, I, when you look at the relationship between FGF21 and FGF1. If you factor in bone loss, yes. how does that um, So that's a very good question. So I think when, when people lose weight and when we see these women with anorexia nervosa, when they're normal weight and they lose weight, you see a dramatic bone phenotype. Um, the original, I, I went to look at when the Scamgen paper came out, I went to look at the original paper just to try to figure out what was different between these two groups. The original paper didn't comment on weight. Um, and they didn't, they didn't mention what happened to the weight, but you expect with the FGF21 transgenic mice, you expect weight loss. And the Amgen group had showed a very nice um, drop in weight in these transgenic mice, um, or these mice treated with FGF21. So for me, it's a little hard to believe that they didn't see a bone phenotype just because yep. of the weight loss itself. Yeah. Exactly, and IGF1 is a very potent anabolic bone Bone right. hormone, and so it's hard. It's a little bit. Hard. Of course, I've I've been working with the hypothesis that FGF twenty one is associated with bone loss for the past three years. So um, this paper really threw a wrench into everything. But I, it, it's. I think the jury is still out. So. Doctor White, one uh, inference from what you presented here is that FGF twenty one may be important in one species and not another. One of the sort of modern ways of at least looking for glimmer of evidence in this regard is to actually look at the frequency with which mutations occur in, for example, humans. I mean, a lot of these data now are being accumulated. I don't know if you've done this or 
having. Well, the answer would be very interesting to see whether the FGF21 gene is just sort of accumulating hits yeah. that aren't relevant to function because the gene is not playing a particularly important really role in human physiology as opposed to the smaller animals in which you can imagine a molecule like this might be more critical for exactly. survival. It's a very interesting thought. Yeah. It's not a question. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's actually very, very interesting. It's something I had fun. Thank you very Thank much. You.